It's December 4, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's the week after Thanksgiving. I hope you had a good holiday. We're back in business. We're going to slowly get back into business. I've got a shorter podcast, I think, if I don't talk too much. We're going to talk about one milestone study, and we're going to take questions from you, the listener. Our milestone study is the piano study. Piano study, if you've heard me talk about drug safety or on pregnancy in the last few years, I would have talked about the piano study because it's such an important study. It comes from our GI colleagues and was published this month in Gastroenterology with the lead author being Uma Mahadevan from UCSF, a really nice, uh, really smart uh, gastroenterologist there. Uh, she and 30 of her friends got together over 10 years ago and developed this cooperative trial where they studied women in their clinics, these are all IBD experts, um, who became pregnant and followed them uh, by protocol for a year looking at important outcomes like low birth weight, spontaneous abortion, live births or not live births, um, congenital malformations. So, And then also even looked at uh, developmental milestones in the uh, child in the first year of life. So they overall have enrolled, I think it's 1,490 patients uh, in the trial. They have um, uh, 1,431 live births. This is a very large trial. You don't find these kind of numbers in pregnancy and drug exposure studies. They had um, 1,010 uh, um, uh, patients where they had one-year outcomes on the infant, uh, and that makes the basis of this trial. To get into the trial, you had to have IBD, and you had to be um, followed in one of these 30 centers around the country, and they put you in one of four buckets. One were the patients who were um, unexposed. I think that's 272 patients who were unexposed to, I'm sorry, 379 who are unexposed. Uh, um, the next group, the second bucket, were those that were on thiopurine, 6-MP or azathioprine, and that's 242 patients. The third group were those taking biologics, 642 of those. They initially started out studying just TNF inhibitors, and they expanded it to include um, vetalizumab, the anti-integrin drug, and the 1223 inhibitor used to kinemab, and a bunch of the TNF inhibitors. The largest biologic in this group was infliximab followed by adalimumab. Uh, and then the fourth group were those who were on a combination of the thiopurine and the biologic. The primary endpoint was a one-year endpoint. At the end of one year, it didn't make any difference. All these patients did well with no significant differences when it came to congenital malformations. The overall congenital malformation rate in this population was 9%. And that was the same if you were on drug and not on drug, therefore allowing you to say that biologics did not increase the risk of congenital malformations in this study. What they also showed in the study were that the uh, that disease activity did influence outcome, that the, those who had high disease activity were more likely to have spontaneous abortions, um, hazard ratio 3.41, a threefold increased risk, uh, and low birth weight, um, I'm sorry, preterm birth um, outcomes at a hazard ratio 1.7, uh, and those that were preterm birth were a slightly higher risk for infections. They also showed that women who were um, uh, likely to flare, those who did flare in the first and the third trimester were likely to not be on either immunomodulators or biologics. And lastly, they showed that there was no um, effect of therapy 
on infant outcomes in, as far as developmental um, milestones, mostly CNS kind of milestones in the first year of life. Th those are very important and very hard to achieve outcomes. This is an important study, uh, and that's why I call it a landmark study that really informs rheumatologists about what you can safely do you know, in your patients who have rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. The bottom line here is, and, and the reason they did this study was in uh, inflammatory bowel disease, those patients have a high rate of flare during pregnancy. So hence the need to continue therapy. We don't always have a high rate of flare during pregnancy, maybe in lupus, not so much in, not as much in rheumatoid arthritis. But the bottom line is the women need to be well controlled by whatever means. And if that means continuing the therapy to have a successful pregnancy outcome, by all means do it. That's really one of the messages in the recent ACR reproductive guidelines that you I should read over at some point. But the main tenet there is the mother's got to be healthy. It's the mother's health that dictates the fetal outcome, much more so than any drug that you may be worried about. So I think a really, really good study. Now, what else is really, really good? Feedback from you in our Backtalk feature. You can find our Backtalk um, icon and you can click on it on the email and also on the website. Uh, and that'll take you to a website. You got to do this on your laptop. You can't do it on a cell phone. Um, and you can record your question or tell me your case. Don't give me a long case. Give me a short case. And thankfully, um, oh, the three calls we're going to look at today were reasonably um, length cases. So uh, our first question comes from Ken Dawson. Ken Dawson here, longtime listener and reader with a question for Dr. Kush. I have a 42-year-old male with seronegative ankylosing spondylitis with two unusual symptoms. He has severe osteoporosis, T-scores in the negative fours, and elevated triptase between 20 and 30 nanograms per liter. He was treated with two years of teriparatide, followed by three years of zoltronic acid. That therapy, along with diet and exercise, brought his T-scores up to negative one. However, the unusually young onset of osteoporosis and consistently elevated triptase makes me wonder, am I missing something? What else would you consider? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Dawson. Um, your case is about three things. Um, it's about um, osteoporosis, really bad osteoporosis. Why does he have really bad osteoporosis as a young male? And um, triptase? Um, really, this is about asking me something I know nothing about, meaning I'm not really an osteoporosis maven. I try to stay up to date like all of us do. Um, and luckily, I'm in a city and, a, and in a program at UT Southwestern um, Medical Center in Dallas where we have a very strong mineral metabolism division. So my advice is on difficult cases like this on a male with horrible osteoporosis at a premature age, you got to involve experts if you're not an expert or ask your colleagues are. Me, I'm sending to my mineral metabolism division or my partner who sits eight feet away from me, Dr. Catherine Dow. She's really good at osteoporosis. Um, you know, if you're in Canada, John Adachi, he's really, really good. If you're in the Northwest, Michael McClung, if you're in Dallas, Stanley Cohen, these are really smart people and reaching out to them. So again, the good news is that this very difficult case with really horrific numbers, um, minus four and whatnot on, on DEXA, um, thankfully got better. And that's really the success story here. But then why does he have this? And what's the deal with the triptase? Triptase, as you know, is a marker of mast cell activity. 
and is a really good marker for anaphylaxis. Other than that, it really shouldn't be tested. I don't use it in my practice as a routine measure. Why would you be doing this in this particular case? I think you know why, and I think you didn't tell us, and that is that a disease called systemic mastocytosis has high tryptase levels, and that uh, mastocytosis may be associated with osteolysis, uh, osteopenia, and osteoporosis uh, with a fr- risk of fracture. So the question is, um, is, the masto- is the tryptase level the marker for mastocytosis, and isn't that being investigated further? I don't think you can make that diagnosis alone on tryptase. Uh, and other than that, I don't have a good reason as to why this man has what would be premature severe osteoporosis. My one contribution is systemic mastocytosis. My second, call someone who knows. I'd call Nancy Lane or one of my colleagues at UT Southwestern uh, and see what they know. Let's go to uh, New Orleans and take a question from there. Hi, this is Eve Scopolitis from Optional Clinic in New Orleans. I'd like to know if there is any data or experience with using methotrexate in doses above 25 milligrams PO or sub-Q in rheumatoid arthritis. I ask this as I have a few patients who insist that methotrexate runs out by the end of the week despite uh, methotrexate 25 milligrams per week. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Scopolitis. Um, I want to underscore a few patients who say the methotrexate runs out. Good news. It's just a few. And we all have people who tell us things that are head scratchers on response to therapy. You know, methotrexate, if you're on it, you're doing well on it, and you stop it, how long before you flare? In general, it's going to be like the studies, I think, showed three to four weeks is when that starts to, really starts to begin uh, and become substantive. Uh, even though it's a short half-life drug, the, the effects are around for quite a while. This has been reinforced by the recent recommendation that patients who are on methotrexate who are going to get the influenza vaccine, you can stop methotrexate for two weeks after you get your influenza vaccine. They do not flare, and they get the, the best immunogenic response from the influenza vaccine. That should be standard practice for all of us. This came out two ACRs ago um, and be, has been published since. So... She asked the question about, one, can you use higher doses and how high do you go? Two, what about switching to parenteral um, and what what might might that do? As you know, the FDA-approved dose for methotrexate is 7.5 up to 20, and the package insert says that beyond 20, you're going to have more toxicity. And when you look at the package insert, there's also dosing guidelines for Neoplastic disease, acute lymphoblast-ALL, it's 20 milligrams per meter square. Mycosis fungoides, it's 50 to 75, sorry, 25 to 75 milligrams per week. Um, A refractory non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, it's like 10 milligrams a week. Not much there. The dose for psoriasis is 10 to 25. So many guidelines really talk about 25 being the highest dose. Um, there are some that say guidelines that say up to 30, but there are reports in the literature where uh, doses of 30, 35, and even 50 have been used. And it has been shown that patients not responding to 20 who then go on to receive 35 or 50 will, some of them will get a clinical response. But when you increase, start increasing the dose 
above 15 milligrams, you're going to increase the risk of toxicity. So if they're already having toxicity, this makes that choice an untenable one. So again, I think that, you know, what about switching to parenteral? Switching from 15 oral to 15 parenteral delivers more drug. And, and it may work, but you're going to get more toxicity. So you have to weigh the efficacy versus the toxicity. Again, your options are to go parenteral as a sub-Q injection, which is pretty cheap, or to do split-dose oral. Patients who are on 15 milligrams or 20 milligrams, that's six or eight pills once a week. There's variable oral absorption, but if you split it um, in the same day, so your six pills every Friday instead becomes three pills BID on Friday, or four pills BID on Friday, you now get closer to 100% absorption, just as if you switch to parenteral. So split dose oral does work as well, does work more, and does deliver more drug, but also delivers more toxicity. I do not generally go above 25 milligrams per week. I'm kind of done with it at that point. I have, in a few years ago, gone as high as 30. I experimented back in my fellowship with up to 50 milligrams. It had much too much toxicity for me to use. And I want to then end with your real question, which is when patients say the drug doesn't work, what's going on there? It's a patient issue, meaning whenever they say the drug doesn't last as long as it's supposed to last, whether we're talking about adalimumab or abatacept or methotrexate, it's the beginning of the end. The patient's lost faith in the drug. Whether it's a real, truly pharmacodynamic issue or not, it's the beginning of the end. You start to need to look to other treatments. And I'm not necessarily saying more aggressive treatment because some of these could be, you know, patient compliance issues, patient worry issues. You know, there are a lot of issues that go into why the drug doesn't last as long as it does. And you have to sort of um, tease that out of your interactions with the patient. Um but I shouldn't teach Dr. Scopolita. She knows more about rheumatology than I do. Uh, thanks for that question. Let's go on to our third and, and final question from uh, Los Angeles. This is Dr. Kurum Abbas. Hi, my name is Kurum Abbas. I'm a rheumatologist in San Jose, California. Um, as you know, in new 2019 criteria for um, lupus uh, from ACI-ULAR, uh, Anti-double-stranded DNA and anti-Smith antibody has the same uh, weightage of six. Uh, my question is, if in SLEI score uh, calculation, can uh, uh, double-stranded DNA be substituted with Smith? So if somebody has a positive Smith antibody, uh, will it have the same weightage as double-stranded DNA? Thanks. So, Kurum, the it's a great question, but you're sort of mixing apples and oranges here. You start out talking about the ACR criteria, ACR-ULR criteria, and that SM and double-strand DNA have the same weighting. This is true in the old criteria and the brand-new criteria. But then you want to apply that to SLEDI, a disease activity measure, not a diagnostic tool, but instead a disease activity measure. And SLEDI, as you know, I think has 12 or 14 components. You score it up. More than four is active disease. More than eight or 10 or 12 is really active disease. And it's got proteinuria on there, hemolytic anemia, and it has DNA, double-stranded DNA, but it does not have SM. And no, you can't substitute one for the other. Seems like a reasonable thing to do, but that's not how the drug, the criteria were in fact developed. So you'd be making your own version of the sleet eye. That would be the sleet eye, not sleet eye 2K, or the Salinas sleet eye, that would be the the Sleet Eye Curum, and uh, I wouldn't recommend that. 
But I do want to talk about the new ACR criteria and tell you a story from clinic this week. I was with a fellow. She presented a case. The case had uh, alopecia, ANA, double-stranded DNA, and arthralgias. And she's talking lupus and management of lupus. I say, hey, wait a second. That's not lupus. doesn't meet criteria. What do you mean? And I said, well, let's go through it. Arthralgias is not a criteria, and I'm using the old 11 criteria, 1982 criteria. And ANA is, and double-stranded DNA is, so she's got two points or you know, maybe three points somewhere, but she didn't have four points, so no, it's not lupus. She said, oh, but Dr. Cush, the new criteria, ACRUR criteria. She takes out her you know, phone and, and punches it up, and boom, you know, the patient has 14 points. So the new criteria, published in 2019, um, require you, number one, to be ANA positive. Number two, um, you have to have one clinical criterion and at least 10 points to have the diagnosis. If you're not ANA positive, I don't care how many points you have, you don't have, you, don't, you can't have lupus according to these new criteria. And this was a nice um, new tool because it optimized both the sensitivity and specificity that you'd like to see, both of these being you know over 90%. So again, it's a it's a it's a bit of a throwback. I have the old criteria memorized, um, but now I have to go look it up when I'm considering a new patient, and it's a little bit tricked up. But you know what? When I first went into rheumatology in 1984, um, Dr. Ziff was visiting Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn. They presented a case to him. And he wrote it all on the board. And then when it came time to, you know, consider lupus, he pulled out his little black book and he started reading off of, of, of hand taking notes on the criteria. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy's world famous. He's a rheumatologist. I can do this. I'm going to be a rheumatologist. So I signed up. And he brought me to Dallas. That's how it all began. But again, now I'm back to look, looking up the criteria to figure out how many points you have. A few things on this case. Number one, the new criteria, look them up. Number two, um, Dr. Abbas is doing a disease activity measure in lupus. I don't do that. I kind of know when they're active, but I don't do a formalized disease activity assessment. And I'm, maybe we should, but it's a lot more work. And then most of you don't know the sleet, the sleet eye or the Selena sleet eye or the sleet I2K or even the sleet eye uh, Abbas off the top of your head. So, you know, I would strongly recommend using whatever you're using. If you're using Rapid3, do it in lupus patients. It's been shown to be effective in many other diseases. The same can be true for HAC or um, uh, CDI, SDI. I do a GAS score. I apply them to all my patients and use that as a tool to tell how active someone is, especially when going from visit to visit. Um, interesting case. Uh, thanks for these calls. Uh, tune in next week for more on the podcast. Bye-bye.